Hey, it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. Today, we're doing something we've never done. We're running another podcast on our feed. But we're so excited about our new show, Fueling the Pursuit, by UCAN, and we wanted to make it easy for you to hear the first episode. When John and I first started our podcast, we made a list of people we wanted to have on the show. One of the first names we both put down was Meb Kiflesky, our former Bruin teammate and one of the greatest distance runners ever. So, we started circling him. First, we interviewed his brother and agent, Marhawi. Then, we interviewed his coach, Bob Larson. Then, we interviewed his longtime competitor, Abdi Abdurrahman. And we were just about ready. And then, we connected with UCAN, and they asked us to do their show. It just so happens, a decade or so ago, Meb was the first high-profile athlete to become a UCAN ambassador, and they wanted him to be their first guest. So, we compromised. We spoke to Meb on their show, and we're running it here on our feed as well. Boom. Bucket list checked. Now, if by chance you don't know Meb, he's a four-time Olympian, marathon silver medalist, New York City marathon champ, Boston marathon champ, former American record holder, and a UCLA Bruin legend. Meb is one of the people we admire most in this world, but it's less for his accomplishments than for his approach. And that is what we wanted to dig into, and I think it comes out really clearly in this episode. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you subscribe to Fueling the Pursuit by UCAN, where John and I are interviewing elite athletes, coaches, and trainers on the mindset that drives them to greatness. But before we get to it, let me give a quick reminder to any new listeners about who we are at Go Be More. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. So how does a clothing company help people chase their dreams? Well, I'm glad you asked. The clothes we wear are like every other part of our physical environment. They not only represent us, they reinforce who we are and who we're committed to being. When you wear a Go Be More shirt, you're wearing your personal commitment to Go Be More, to chase those dreams. And what better way to show someone you support them than to give them a physical symbol of your belief in them? We want the words Go Be More to remind you of your dreams every time you see them. As for this podcast... This is our chance to explore what it means to go be more with the people who inspire us and to share those stories and strategies with you. As always, if you have any feedback, you can email me at brian at gobemore.co or hit us up on social media. Okay, here's episode one of Fueling the Pursuit with the one and only Meb Kifleski. Replenishing, stretching, icing, therapy, sleeping, and the mind frame is important. So for me, you know, even when you sleep and you train, I really believe it was 24-7 job. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's John here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Fueling the Pursuit, presented by UCAN. The voice you just heard was that of Meb Kaplesky, arguably the greatest marathoner in U.S. history. Now, Meb, he's someone I've been looking up to for nearly 30 years. And in many ways, I feel like I've been chasing Meb my entire life. My co-host Brian Green and I, we got to catch up with Meb and dive into what makes him, well, Meb. Consistency, preparation, intention, these are the words that can easily define Meb and how he approached his craft as a runner every single day. But it was how he framed these elements, how he thought about them, that led to sustained excellence for over 20 years. This is what we explore in our episode with Meb today. But before we get into this episode, I want to take just a moment to introduce UCAN and this podcast to any of our newest listeners. 
UCAN has become the product of choice for so many athletes across different sports over the past decade. But even UCAN knows that true success is about so much more than what you put into your body. It's about how you fuel your passions and your motivations and your mindset. That's why this podcast is going to take you inside the minds of Olympians, elite athletes, coaches, trainers, to better understand what drives them to constantly push to achieve new personal bests. We're so excited to take you on this journey and hope we can help give you a little more fuel as you work towards optimizing your own performances, both in sport and in life. Now, on to the episode with Meb. All right, today's guest is Mebratsam Kifleski, better known to all simply as Meb. Meb is one of the most decorated distance runners in U.S. history, winning four NCAA championships for the UCLA Bruins, go Bruins, 23 U.S. championships, Bruins. the 2004 Olympic Marathon Silver Medal, 2009 New York City Marathon, and the 2014 Boston Marathon. Meb ran competitively for nearly 20 years, qualified for four Olympics, was a consistent podium finisher in major competitions, and is widely known as the nicest, most humble guy in the sport. So we're particularly excited to learn what Meb thought set him apart from other athletes, how he sustained his elite level of performance for so long, and how he recovered from a near career-ending injury in 2008 to have some of his greatest successes. Meb, we've been really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hello, guys. It is wonderful, wonderful to be with you guys. Um, Brian Green and John Rankin, my teammates from UCLA days. So this is a very special uh, podcast because, you know, we're going to relive a little bit and uh, to be able to see familiar faces and that we were teammates is incredible. So uh, awesome, awesome to be with you guys and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, thanks, man. I mean, there's so much that Brian and I want to say so much and talk about so much. I mean, we, we really want to obviously keep the focus on what makes you great, man, and it's your mentality. But it, it is a pleasure. I mean, I got the biggest smile on my face because <laughs> there's just such a rich history that we all, all three of us have together. And to be having this experience today, yeah, it means it definitely feels great. It means a lot. You know, great to be with you guys. It's, you know, that UCLA connection is there and, and yeah. that wearing that singlet and getting whatever event was a mile or mm-hmm. cross country or 5K, 10K is uh, it's a driving force. So we can all relate how proud we are and to represent uh, our institution, the UCLA. You know, it used to mm-hmm. be the eight club, but I think they're changing, changing out to four up now. But uh, you know, <laughs> right, right. We're all timers, all timers. All timers, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Meb, can you tell us a little bit about where you're at right now? Where are you? Are you still running every day? Are you are you still keeping fit? I love running. The sport of running has an amazing thing for me. Who would ever thought running from PE class to, you know, full scholarship to UCLA, go to the Olympics, but I still love to run. I have dealt with a couple injuries, quad and shoulder, but other than that, I still love to run, uh, you know, five, six days a week. Sometimes even seven days is better. Coach Bob Larson, you guys yeah. know that. I used to always say, he always says, if you run every day is better than taking days off or weeks off. So I still like to stick with that mentality, but I'm in Tampa, Florida, where I reside now. And uh, so, you know, just spend a lot of time with the kids, taking them to school, taking them to soccer and the soccer dad and uh, school transportation about it right now. But I still like to do Zoom and personal speaking engagements through the, through virtually and uh, great. Real quick, wait a minute, Tampa. Bay, so Super Bowl champions? 
So, I mean, you're from San Diego. So, I mean, I know that b- before they moved, that we got the Chargers and stuff. So is Tampa Bay for sure officially your team? It is. It is. And then a yeah. lot of connection with the Patriots, you know, you know, Tom Brady and right. uh, Gronk and Belichick. They all three of them have signed jersey for me and gave it to me. So, you know, the question is not here, but uh, Tom and uh, Gronk as a great, you know, I know I met. Gronk a few times. He's a great friend yeah. of mine. And, and then uh, to be able to see, pull it together and to be able to be in Tampa and Amazing. at their hometown for the first time is it's magical, but very, very happy and proud of them and great to be here. Very cool. I love it. <laughs> well, Meb, one of the things we're focusing on in this podcast is we, we really want to understand kind of what makes you tick and mentally what drove you and, and what motivated you and how you thought about the sport in order to get the most out of yourself. And one of the things I was thinking about before we got started is what from the outside, what are the qualities that I see in you that define you? And for me, the main ones are your consistency and your preparation. Like those are the two things whenever I see you, that's what stands out. And I wanted to ask John also a little bit, what qualities he stood out. And then I want to ask you, how do you think of yourself? What are the qualities that embody you? But John, what what do you think of when you think of Meb? Well, yeah, the word that came to mind for me, Meb, was intentional. You know, I felt like looking and observing and trying to model at least my effort in terms of achievements in the sport after you, I thought about what was driving you to do what you were doing so consistently for so long at such a high level. And I just felt like you didn't leave yourself the option of not succeeding. That was never an option for you. And so I felt like you were very intentional with regards to achieving the greatness that you you reached in, in the sport. So that's the, the word that always comes to mind for me, or one of the main words is uh, intentional. So Meb, I think of you as consistent and prepared and John intentional. How do you think of yourself? Well, you guys know me pretty well. Uh, the key to success is preparation. The key to success is preparation. And to have a preparation, you have to have a sense of purpose or intentions every single day. Hard days mean hard, easy days mean easy. And, and you guys know when I run with you guys, when I push it, I push the envelope the hardest I can. But when I'm running for recovery run, we're having a conversation, just fun and happy to be among each other. And uh, I think consistency also is huge because... What you do day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, it's a build up for next year. You know, what you do this year is a build up for next year. So that consistent training when we were at UCLA, like be on time, be be there. And you mm-hmm. got to be able to just put the regiment in and not only in the athletics, but also academics is the same way. So whatever you take it to practice, you also need to apply it into academics. While you take the academics, you need to apply it in real life. So I think... For me, the preparation is important, but also mental preparation. You know, English was very hard for me. Mm-hmm. I really have to work hard. And I see that drive come pretty evident to me to be able to say, you know, if I'm going to succeed, I got to work hard. And even though English is my second language at UCLA, I struggle to some, some writing classes. I have to work hard and running is that, but it came easier for me to participate in running when I was running with my teammates at UCLA mm-hmm. there you know, it was effortless. If you ask them to write a paper, it's going to be easier for them than running, but vice versa for me. But we encourage each other. We support each other. So having done that, I think 90% is um, mental, 10% physical. 
in training. And then on race day, it switches, it becomes 90% mental. Now you're healthy 10% physically and you're there together. And how do you play that mind game to be able to be the best you can? So both of you guys are right on consistency and, and intentional. I think that's really fascinating, Matt, because you, uh, there's also another quality I'd written down, which is that you were very bold. But what's funny about that is that it's not really a quality of training so much as a quality of racing, right? In the training, you're very measured and, and intentional about it. But in the race, you would make a big move or you'd be comfortable doing something like that. And, and that quality comes out as well, I think, of the preparation and of the intention, knowing everything, having a plan, knowing you did the work and knowing that you have it in you to make the move allows you to be bold, right? And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. You know, well, thanks for that comment. But at the mm-hmm. same time is when you train, you can see the progress. You can see what you can and can't do. So assessing who you're competing against is very important. So when you know what your strengths is, what your weaknesses are, and a part of what makes me bold is, you know, I'm not super, super comfortable for the last lap. So I got to make a count beforehand. And then when I make those intentional moves, I have to say, make a count. And, you know, when people are hesitant to say, I, I don't think I can hold on until that finish line, but you can by, by separating early. So you have to make those moves important, make them count. And it's then, I think, you know, I, I grew up, you guys knew that I had Prefontaine on my, on my post in my dorms. And I love his purpose. You know, he's going to make it hurt and to give less than yourself, to give it less than your best is a sacrifice, uh, the gift. So I remember mm-hmm. thinking that, and sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but at the same time, by making that bold move, you know what you can and can't do. And then hopefully with training, you know, you might go third of top 15, like cross country freshman year. I was 15th, but I was ecstatic because I was, I made it all American, but I went for it for the win, you know, and then, and I'm right. 15, but I was holding with dear life for the last spot. It was the last spot to get. And I have to beat my high school idol, Louis Quintana, to be able to do that. But that made you say, wow, this guy I looked up to in high school and he was a phenomenal athlete. I'm close. I beat him. So that gives you and say, hey, I couldn't even do better next time. So those mm-hmm. things are important. I wanted to touch on this here because you're talking about some of your college experiences, right? These are early experiences in your career. Like you're just getting started and you're just kind of feeling out how good you can be. You don't even necessarily know, but you're going for the win. But oftentimes when you're a freshman going for the win, that's a pretty naive attempt, you know, for most freshmen in a cross country race. Right. So it's a lot of this is feeling yourself out and learning about yourself. And I'm wondering as you were at that stage of your career and you're just starting to develop the habits and the mindset, that's going to make you successful. What was an early experience that sort of made you realize, Oh, I got to improve this. I got to, I got to get better here. You know, I have to give a credit to course for Bob Larson there, because I remember when we stepped in as a freshman, two things. One, he said, what have you been doing? It's working. And so I, once I showed him my training log, we're going to increase it by 10% and don't rush it. And the other thing is, he says, you're a freshman and a sophomore. You know, the first two years is you are the chasee. You know, you're going to have to chase, but by senior year, hopefully you're going to be chased at. So it was kind of interesting to put it that perspective. Don't put pressure on yourself the first two years. But, you know, after that, your junior and senior year, we expect you to do well. We expect you to win. And people are going to be chasing you down now. So have fun chasing those people the first couple of years. And that puts some perspective for me. And I think with running, the progress are important. And then to talk about the, um, I think it was Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the races was. I remember my freshman year going out like 203 and it's a little bit downhill, muddy and whatever, but I put it up there. And I, what <laughs> am I doing? And 
And it was a tough one, tough cross country race, obviously 10 kilometers going out into O3 or something on the mud. It was not fun, but you got to do whatever you need to do to pee in position. But at the same time, by getting that all American mix, I realized, hey, if it was, if I can be a little bit patient and make them move in the middle instead of getting slower and slower and slower, you adjust, you adapt. And with training, you can modify this workouts to be able to make it better. It's funny you say patience and developing that. That was the other thing that I was thinking about um, your level of execution at all levels, but obviously it improved over time. And it was obviously something that needed to improve, especially at the Olympic and professional levels, your patience, that stands out to me. Where do you think that comes from? And do you believe that you were able to, or did you focus on improving that over time? I think a combination of both to be able to just experience and then sometimes you make mistakes at the high school level or the collegiate yeah. level and then at the professional level and then you start modifying and you know you think i'll be honest i didn't think i got every race i'm going to win except mm-hmm. probably as later on as i developed maybe by junior year or senior year in college uh, at the ncaa level as a pac 10 or conference championships or uh, other races you think you can win but when it comes to the big games big big uh championship games, whether it's a high school or college or NCAAs or USA Nationals, Olympics. First mm-hmm. time, I'm just happy to wear that jersey, whatever it is, San Diego High, UCLA, That's USA cool. team or whatnot. So you have those perspectives. But then at yeah. one point, there's a thing where you have to turn around and says, okay, I'm going to win. I'm going to work hard and be able to put that. And, you know, when I won my first USA championship, I was thrilled. And then eventually you say, I want one more, one more. And then you eventually become <laughs> 23 USA champion, but it is one goal at a time, one event at a time. And then I always wanted to show that I was a very versatile athlete, you know, with yeah. this first country on the track, on the road. So, but those are the things that you have to kind of learn as you go and have good mentors and you have to be patient. Sometimes you make a move and that's costly move. And like my first New York City marathon, I thought I could win it and then hit the wall really hard. But that taught me, I said, I got my PhD that day. That taught me what to do, what not mm-hmm. to do. And then eventually I used those lessons to when I won the Boston Marathon, you know, usually a 60 miles is taken. You, you made too many, too early move at the New York yeah. City Marathon as your first one. And then at the Boston Marathon in 2014, you're making a move a mile five. That's crazy. But experience and, mm-hmm. and who you're competing against and make it count. Well, let me ask you this question because you talked about this experience as a freshman in college going out of 203 in a cross-country race. You know, it's kind of, that's, that's insane. And yet at the same time, you're clearly putting yourself in a high risk situation in terms of your ability to finish, right? You're putting yourself in position to get the goal you want, but there's a lot of risk that comes with not being able to, to maintain or to stay there. And you've done that throughout your career. And I'm wondering when you're preparing for the race, what's your thought process on risk versus reward in those situations? Like, obviously you're willing to set yourself up to fail in order to try to get what you want. But I think a lot of athletes struggle with that. They're afraid to, they stay a little bit too conservative. They're a little bit too worried about the bad result. And so they maybe don't do what they need to, to put themselves in position for the good result. You know, fortunately for me, I had some good mentors and coaches, coach Ed Ramos, uh, the highest San Diego high, and then had an assistant with Ron Tab, and then coach Bob Larson. So you guys remember when you see LA, sometimes we would go hard at the beginning, or sometimes we go hard in the middle and then finish strong. So it depends on the workout. So those are the indicators of the race, what we can do. But, you know, as an efficient runner that I was, I know when I can build a lactic acid when I can. So sometimes been patient or been aggressive, you, you live the, with the consequences. But at the same time, 
on a bigger races. And I made some mistakes. I'm not going to say I didn't make mistakes, but you learn from it. And you say, you know what, what's my strength? What's my weakness? And some of us have more consistent pace for longer period and others can save and have a phenomenal kick. And you don't want to be with the people that there. So you have to, that risk reward is like, you know, when I was running against Alan Culpepper, I better have space because <laughs> I know he's going to have an amazing kick. So you think of that and you have to study your competitors ahead of time to know what they're capable of doing, what they can. And you don't want to go against Bernard Lagat in the last 400 meter at the conference championship. Or NCAA. So you make <laughs> no, a move you don't. A- ahead of time. So, and I have competed against those guys that are great sprinters, uh, milers that are amazing finishes, but to beat them in the 5k or in the 10k, I got to make my move count with about two miles to go. So Meb, you had a lot of success in college. You won four national championships. You become a pro. Can you talk us through that transition? And mostly what I'm interested in is what are the key things that you wanted to establish for yourself in order to keep building and have a sustained long career that got you the goals you wanted? Because you know, coming out of college, you weren't at the level to achieve those goals yet. You had to build to it. So how did you approach that? And how did you build that into your lifestyle? Well, you know, my start, my run started to for physical education class in seventh grade, a passion, and that eventually turned out to be a scholarship to UCLA. And when I was at UCLA in 97, 1997, when I won four NCAA titles, they were not an easy one. They were probably one of the stacked that fields ever assembled. And you had to right. have even, you had a prelim for the 5K. And, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and so you have a 10K prelim for the 5K and then day off. And then the next day you have the 5K final. So they don't do that anymore. But is uh, rigorous training and whatnot. But when I won those four NCAA titles, including cross country and indoor, I said, oh, this could be a livelihood for me. I never thought before that I could be an Olympian or do anything else. But it kind of goes in your head. It says, you know what? I became NCAA champion and I want to be able to make US Olympic team. But it's not like you never hear me say, hey, I'm going to win a medal or things like that. Just keep it under radar. But every stepping stone like that, four NCAA titles is like, oh, Maybe I, I, I did consider saying, should I go professional? But then it's like, my parents always tell me the key to life is education. Make sure I get my diploma was, was another year. And then Coach Larson, what, he was still behind it and, and then been consistent with him. And the same coaching philosophy kind of helps because there's no magic in running. It's just, you got to put in the run, you got to put in the work and you have to have great mentors. So those kind of lead. And then when I made the Olympic team. I was happy to wear the USA jersey. I was ecstatic. And but before I left the stadium at the Sydney Australia Games, uh, finishing, I had the flu. Disappointing for me, but close to my PR, I finished 12. But before I left the stadium, I said, next time I want to make not only an Olympic team, but I want to win a medal for our country. So you made those mental notes on yourself, even though you didn't have the greatest race, but you keep track of that. And then next time you go around, and you know, when I made that goal, I thought it was. It's going to be in the 10K because I haven't done a marathon yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, be able to make the 10K team on the marathon team. And at that point, you got to decide what's the more prestigious in terms of what you want to do with your career to John's credit or intention or purpose. And for mm-hmm. me to be in Athens at the Olympic where Olympics started and to run the original course and, you know, my chances were better in the 10K in terms of meddling as an American record holder, as a national champion, as a championship record holder. But the marathon has that prestige to be the last event and to the closing ceremony and to run the original course. I said, you know what? I can't pass that along. And so those decisions have to be very vital and important and purposeful to kind of make you get, get out every day to train harder, hopefully better than somebody else. 
Yeah, just to touch on that that particular performance, Meb, I'm, it was so fun watching it with my family as it was unfolding. I mean, it was magical. And then, of course, it's like, hey, it's my big brother, man. There goes Meb, right? He's doing his thing. Man, but the, the way that you executed, again, the word that stands out, you were patient, man, in that race. <laughs> and you just chipped away and like flies, they started dropping off. And next thing you know, I'm like, well, there goes Paul Turgot. I'm like, wait, Meb's still there. And everybody's going, I mean, it was crazy, but that was a masterful performance and execution from my perspective of your ability to be very patient and to run according to what, what your plan was and you stuck to it. And it just seemed like you guys were super prepared and you executed beautifully that day. And so just to touch on that race really quick, that was, I thought, amazing performance and reflection of patience on your part. Big kudos goes to Coach Jovijo and Coach Bob Larson and Dina Castor, who was my teammate, and also the United States Olympic Committee, because they explained how important patience will be. It'll be understand important how to run the hot, humid, mm. heli course. So they laid down the foundation at the San Diego Training Center. Everybody, you know, Cole Pepper was there and the women's Olympic team were there to give us overview of the course and like seminar, what to do, what not to do, how to execute, how Americans have done in the heat before. So it was masterpiece plan. And then once the gun goes off, you cannot lose your patience or you cannot react in the moment. You have to do a very thorough understanding of what, what your plan is. And for me, with a thrill of a lifetime you know, I was the 39th fastest guy in the field out of 101. So meddling, according to others, it was not in the plan. But my training in Mammoth Lakes, it was phenomenal. And I remember Mario Arce, who was training Mario. me on the bike, he says, nobody's training hard as you at 9,000 feet. You know, was, he, he kind of, he can see what I was doing, the workouts. And to be able to run, you guys know, Green Church oh, yeah. Road. And to be able to go eight miles out, seven miles back, hot, I mean, eight 7,000 feet, tough course. And to average with the hills... Uh, 457 and we knew we were ready to go but at the same time you have to, you have to make it count on the race day and yeah. for me to execute that plan and to be able to give thumbs up to coach larson of 15k and to be able to compete against my hero like um yeah. god and to be able to get it down to six people to four people and now it's like i just want a medal i don't care what color it's going to be and <laughs> i have to see dina castle win, to see that dina castle win that medal the week before and there's a night Tadese from eritrea winning that bronze medal from the 10k i'm thinking i'm glad i'm not in the 10k i would have been one fighting for the first medal of the country you know that would have been a tough spot to be in but right. in hindsight you know they inspired me both of them and to be able to win it medal for our country at the as last event and to be getting a standing ovation by the u.s olympians when i went to the airport the next day it was incredible ah oh. Man, that, you so said there's cool. no magic in distance running, but I, I, I echo John. Like for me, on the side, it was a magical moment. It was amazing. You, you've talked a couple times about the preparation, right? And the plan. And we've talked with Coach Larson about this too. He tells the stories about all the stuff they did to research and get ready and know the course and keep your body cool with ice vests and all these different things. And they just pushed every lever they could find. They used it. But there's another thing that comes to me about this. And I, it's less about the event preparation, but Coach Bob told me, at one point told us, John and I, that no athlete in history has probably done more drills than Meb. And, <laughs> and I thought about that because he was using it to emphasize that your consistency and just discipline to do those small things, to do the work. And I'm curious on a day-to-day -day basis, what's your thought process around doing the little things and doing the drills and being thorough in that way? Well, thanks to Coach Larson. And, and I think, you know, 
2008 was a turning point for me. And I did the drills in high school. We did some at UCLA. And then at one point, it kind of got away from me. But yeah, I'm a very diligent. I mean, I like taking instructions. If it's going to help me, I'm going to apply it to the best that I can. And to be able to do those, you know, not only it's just drills, but the stretching, the ice bath, the massages. I mean, I spent a lot of money in therapy and massages. People say, what hurts? Sometimes when I go out of town, people ask me, because you injure, you go see therapists. But for me, it's always been investment in the body. And he, he said, nothing hurt. I just wanted to be able to take the lactic acid out. I put myself through 130 miles and I want to be able to work on me and prevent prehab instead of rehab. Because I don't want to be, I hate being injured. Just like I don't like to be cold. You got to do layered up, layered up. And same thing with, with training. I mean, you got to be able to plan ahead and make sure it works. But, you know, it's, it's rigorous training and routine and if you preach it, you got to live to it too at the same time. So it was very important for me to be able to follow those instructions. Coach John Wood, and we all know who he is, mm-hmm. what he said was, it's not what you do in training those two hours, but how you take care of yourself for the next 22 hours. So wow. punishing, stretching, icing, therapy, sleeping, and the mind frame is important. So for me, you know, even when you sleep and you train, I really believe it was 24-7 job, but I took it seriously and you never know it's going to pay off, but it, it definitely did for me. I love that quote you just said, even when you're sleeping, you're training. I think that is exactly the <laughs> mentality that like younger, especially younger inexperienced athletes, they just don't really appreciate the way that a pro and somebody of your experience level does. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to plug in your book here, make the leap. You have to be able to be able to think better, train better. And all that comes to be run faster. So it's all about following rules and be able to do them day in. Sometimes that might be boring though. You know, it might mm-hmm. be like, oh, am I, is this going to pay me off? Is it not going to pay me off? But investment is always an investment. So a perfect example is the Boston 2014. I mean, for me, if I didn't have those drills, my, my body would have broken down. I mean, I made a move at mile five and then at mile eight, at mile 14. And after that, it was by myself. But to think all the mechanic, mechanic, if you didn't think those in training or drills, high knees or how's my form, how's my chin and all those dialogue that you have, you will break down. But, you know, to be able to hold that together for the rest of the duration of the race, I was able to hold Mm -hmm. them off. But if I didn't those for sure, I didn't think I would have won. Well, that's the thing, right? You're doing the drills with no, you have to just have the faith and the confidence that the drills will pay off in the future, even because you're not seeing the benefits today, you're anticipating the benefits at some point in the future. Absolutely. I think anything in life is risk. You know, it's a risk reward. Running, I remember, I didn't think running was going to pay off. So when I turned professional, even though I had my Nike contract, it wasn't big. So I have to have a part-time job just in case. I tell them if I go to interviews, they said like, yeah, I've been running a hundred miles a week. And for three years, four years, five years, that's not going to cut it. So you need to have something to build in your resume as a customer service and things like that. So yes, there's a risk reward, but at the same time, if you are convinced that this is the right thing for you and for your body and you're doing it, yes, at the time it's like, is this really, I mean, doing hopscotches or one single leg bounce, is it really going to work? But it does because people think it's just about running. It's not how many miles you put in, it's how complete you become and be able to make those fibers and muscles so strong that make it seamless when you're making a move or be the last one to break down versus your competitors. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Meb, you mentioned already the 2008 injury. And let's, can we talk a little bit about that? Because from the outside, you've had this long career, but right in the middle of it, you're at your peak. You're the best runner in the country. Everybody expects you to, if not win the 2008 Olympic trials, to be up there and to, to qualify. And you have this devastating injury. Can you talk us a little bit about that injury and really like how tough was it for you to have that experience? Brian, I think to win the silver medal was humongous. I mm-hmm. mean, and then to come back 70 days later to get second at the New York City Marathon, I made a tactical mistake there. And then 2005 probably was another great shape for me, you know, to be able to try to break 27 minutes for the 10K. And then I had ruptured my quad at the Helsinki World Championship Games. And then, you know, to come back from that and third, third in Boston in 2006, you're like, okay. I'm ready for the Olympic trials, maybe my first win of a marathon and hopefully on my way to Beijing, but actually you don't always get what you think you deserve or what you think you want. And to be able to be, you know, I finished, end up getting eighth place. As an athlete going to the Olympic trials, I was a favorite and then Ryan Mm -hmm. Hall ran away with it. But you always say, maybe I can be second. And then you can, when he's beating you, maybe Dathan passed me, I was beat third. And then Brian's sale passed you, maybe I can be an alternate. And then, Maybe Ryan Hall and Nathan will do the 10K just like I did it, you know, at the Beijing Olympic. Maybe I can be a backup. Uh, I'm going to the Olympic team or as alternate. And they keep thinking that you might, keep thinking that you might. And then I end up getting eighth place. Definitely kind of uh, pissed off. And at mm-hmm. the same time, it just I was hurting pretty bad. And then a good friend of mine tell me, he's like, you know what happened to Ryan? And I'm thinking about Ryan Hall. Did he, it was a misty day. Did he fall or something? He says, no, Ryan Shea. And he says, no, what happened? He's like, he's dead. And then so you hear that word. He had a cardiac arrest and passed away. So it's like, and he's the guy that was sitting, which I didn't, at the moment I was so exhausted. I didn't think about it, but he was sitting on the bus next to me to the starting line. And so, I, you know, wow. he like, and I trained in San Diego with him. I would train in the Mammoth Lakes with him. We were good friends. We had dinners together at our house and stuff like that. So it was just like, I collapsed to the ground and, cried hysterically and it just like mentally, physically, and emotionally, I was done. And I couldn't even get back up. And a friend of mine helped me get back up, get me in a taxi. And then I tell Howie, my brother manager, mm-hmm. you guys know, I said, hey, go look after Alicia, his wife. Uh, you know, unfortunately he passed away, but that put a life perspective for me. So it was 10 weeks later. I didn't even, you know, injuries. I didn't even find I had injuries. 10 weeks later is when I had pelvis chest fracture on my hip. And so you know, it kind of, but it puts life in perspective. And now it's like, okay, my injury, not going to the Olympic team versus a friend of mine who passed away. You know what? No big deal. The Olympics mm-hmm. just live life to the fullest. But at that day, I remember Jordana's my wife and Howie and Coach Larson walked away from the hotel. said, well, you put a fight there. You, you know, it's been great working with you. And then I'm like, what does that mean? Am I done? <laughs> <laughs> Am I, you know, stuff like that. And I remember it was a positive question. And I and I kneeled on our knees and prayed that, you know, if whatever God has will, we're ready to go. Because I was on my knees and elbows moving around the hotel. I couldn't stand up. And it was just an exaggerating pain. So she's like, you got your UCLA degree. I got my South Florida degree. We can make other things happen to make ends meet. You don't have to run again. But I remember I thought about what I was doing in training in Mammoth Lakes and even Ryan Hall goes before we left the, the training center. He says, Hey, I just want to be on the plane with you to Beijing. So here he's going, I'm staying home, but it puts things in perspective. And um, I told him how we and Jordanos, 
well, I guess I'm not going to Beijing. New York City Marathon is going to be my Olympic. So to have to think for the next thing, I guess, instead of just being down on yourself. Mm -hmm. And we prayed about it. And I remember that December, I even telling my brothers and that most likely I'm going to retire. Things are coming to an end. I'm going to need you more support than ever. But after about a year and a half of therapy and seeing 50 doctors, MD and chiropractics, and, you know, it took me a year and a half of therapy and I was able to run a personal best and win the New York City Marathon, which I still think is my gold medal that I never had the Olympic game. Not that I could have during the Olympics, but I really, when I was watching the Beijing Olympics, I remember watching it with Yardanos. I said, silver, tough, gold, definitely not, but a bronze medal would have been very possible, but even a, a, I think a silver medal would have been very possible. So you have when you say those things, you kind of say it out loud, but you have to live through it when you come back, when you come back from, from training and injuries. Hearing about some of the details of the, the challenges that you were facing and obviously how hard it would be to think about or, or work through that mentally, do you feel like that was something that maybe a lot of people didn't really understand the challenges you went through? Because, I mean, what happened at the latter part of your career, Brian and I were talking about, it's like, man, you had some of the biggest successes after this injury, but I think a lot of people took for granted. I think a lot of us took for granted uh, how hard that really was for you. You know, there was a lot of pressure. I mean, mm -hmm. definitely for sure. I think when I won the Super I'm glad I didn't watch the broadcast of the New York City Marathon until afterward because <laughs> the pressure was pretty, pretty big. But at the same time, you know, for me, I still believe I never done it, but I never, I could have broke 27 minutes in the 10K. So I know what I'm capable of doing. Sometimes yeah. you live up to it and other times due to the weather or pacing or just tough condition or, you know, it's not like you didn't do the training. It's just the race did not unfold the way you want it to unfold. And yeah. sometimes you get lapped. I mean, I went, you know, it's not like the 10Ks are every weekend or every races. It's like Stanford and then you go to Brussels and, you know, those guys are going 13, 15, 13, 20 for the first 5K and you're trying to break <laughs> 27 minutes and you hope you don't get lapped. So those things, but mentally, hopefully you have to think, okay, I didn't get lapped, but I finished 28, you know, 28 minutes instead of 27 minutes. So you, mm -hmm. you have to say, put in perspective and help you go forward those lap, help you go those goals going forward versus saying, man, I got destroyed. You can't, yeah, you did, but don't let it destroy you even farther beyond the next race. You, next race, you got to say, I'm ready. I've got to work harder. I always, always got left motivated from the Brussels meet. You know, it was a yeah. memorial. It's called Memorial Van Dam, And you go there, you know, you got the drums. You got the stadium doing the wave like a soccer or football stadiums and for running. And I felt like, wow, you know, you have ice cream and beer there and people are just, you know, I ecstatic and just wonderful time, but at the yeah. same time, the rating itself can send a benchmark for what's coming up next. Right. Can I ask you, Meb, you had this injury and you had to do all this work to come back from it. Do you feel you would have won the New York City Marathon had you not had this injury and gone through that process? Absolutely. I think I could have. I remember after I saw what happened in, I want to say 2006. Uh, yeah, 2006 New York City Marathon, the Santos won it and I asked what time it was. And, you know, when I was, it was 210 two, two or 210.03 or 210 two or, uh, along that time. And I 
previously two times that I have run, I ran 209.53 and 209.56 only, especially 2005. After the route required in Helsinki, I only had eight weeks to train and I've run running a 209.56 behind the defending champion and behind the world record holder, Paul Turgot. So I just said, you know, if I can stay healthy, I know I could win it. So I remember after that race in 2006, I said, that was the year, that was the year I could have won. But I think if I could stay healthy and things kind of meant out to be, I could have won a few times, but hey. You know, I had a chance to defend it in 2010. It didn't happen. So that's the territory that comes with a marathon. A lot of things can go wrong. And sometimes with the fluid, sometimes with the injury, sometimes pacing, sometimes weather. So I feel honored and proud to have won the New York City Marathon and to have won the Boston Marathon and Olympic medal. It just makes even appreciate that much greater because, you know, when you hit out the ballpark, it's pretty sweet. And, and sometimes it's not for lack of trying, but sometimes the chips don't fall in the places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and knowing that you did it, like you accomplished it and you had just come back from something that was so difficult where you're literally contemplating retirement and yet you do the work, you get yourself back up and then you actually pull it off. Everything comes together. Like, what did you learn from yourself? Did you feel like you learned something about yourself from that process? Well, to have my good friend Raisha pass away, it puts everything in perspective. You don't mm-hmm. take things for granted. Every time you're running, like, oh my gosh, I'm running. I'm running pain without pain. And so those things are, whereas before it would have been like, oh yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, you take it for granted. And you have higher expectation. But now that you are making, you are grateful, <laughs> a lot more grateful for those opportunities that you have, you know, especially with the per- I don't know if you guys know Dr. Uh, Dr. Nati from UCLA. I remember calling her after my pelvis chest fracture. Can I walk normal? Can I run just for recreation? I wasn't even thinking in the New York City Marathon or making two other Olympic team. It just, you know, mind-boggling what the body can do when it's in the, mind, in the right mind frame. So for mm-hmm. me to be able yeah. to overcome those challenges, it gave me, I don't think things for granted. Yeah, the only experience that I could kind of match it up to is I don't know if you remember in 2006 at the senior championships in track and field when I was running the 800 and the 1500 double. And I was going through both the rounds for the 15 and the eight, and my foot broke. And the second round of the 800 meter, you know, uh, a second round, like the semifinals of the eight. And it was 2006 is my first full year running professionally. And the whole experience of thinking like, Seeing all the doctors, my foot basically had broken in half. The third metatarsal completely fractured. One bone was on top of the other. And the doctors were saying, you're done. They want to put pins in it and all this other stuff. And thankfully, I went to see other people, other professionals in the medical field that gave me different opinions. And we worked through it. But man, it was an interesting journey because a lot of the time I was wondering, and I'm being told, for the most part, your career is over. And it had just started. And then two years later, I became an alternate on the Olympic team, but the experience of going through something like that and being told that it might be over and then finding out that it's just part of the journey, that was the lesson that I feel like we can all learn from those types of experiences. And, and when I think about your story, Meb, in that particular moment, and then everything that happened afterwards, it's like, don't say it's over yet. You know, Don't necessarily cash in all your chips just yet because... You might be on the verge of a huge breakthrough. Absolutely. I mean, you get injured because you pushed the envelope too far. <laughs> it's not because you were sitting on the couch. But yeah, I had kind of yeah. similar to your. So I remember uh, I saw a doctor in LA and he diagnosed I had an abdominal tear. And 
rescheduled to the surgery. And I remember Jordana's my wife and then Dr. Van Camp who said, let's get mm -hmm. a second opinion. But the pelvis fracture, which eventually got discovered, but it was kind of misdiagnosed to be abdominal tear and they were going to do surgery. And we, because we were trying to rush to make the Olympic team in the 10K, we were ready to do it. But thankfully for Jordanos and Dr. Van Camp, we got a second opinion and Dr. Louis Meharam, who lives in New York, kind of discovered the injuries. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you're on the verge of doing something great and you're pushing, you're pushing, but at the same time, you know, that you come back stronger. Mm. And obviously... To answer your question, Brian, earlier, so could I have one another New York? Or I always, you know, people are were like, oh, my brand 208 and when he was close to 39 or whatever, one Boston Lake. But for me, I always believed that I was, you know, 206 or 205, even 207 marathon. It never materialized on the clock, but I went for it. Sometimes I kind of crowded in and <laughs> hit the wall hard. I mean, to go to a New York City marathon, like 10249, you know, or other races. It's a, a world record pace and like the Boston, you know, I think was, yeah, 10244 or 10230 and stuff when it was the world record was 205. But hey, you put it up there and I wasn't paying attention to the halfway. I was just splitting. I was feeling so great. And those are monumental in the long run. Yeah, you didn't hit that time that you want or that title that you would have liked. But if you can stay consistent with it, the breakthrough will come eventually. That's so Sarah. fundamental. The, yeah. the, the willingness to to fail in a larger purpose of going for the goal that you have set, but also knowing that that failure is just another building block towards a larger success in the future, right? And I think it's helpful for me as well, thinking it's not just even about running, just about anything you're doing. It's accepting that you're going to take a risk and it might fail, but that you can learn from that and and move forward better as a result of the experience. You know, for me... Uh... I always took three good things, three bad things, almost every race. And, and I don't remember all of them, but I kept manually training log since 1993. And I would write and I would say, what are three things that went great and three things that didn't that I could learn next time around. So every race, I go back and look at those things that I did right and keep doing them. And then the things that I made a mistake and improve on that. And sometimes it's, it's always learning experience and try to do the best that you can every time. I love that. Actually, really quickly, can you just, are there any other tips, like the way you kept your training log around things that you did to keep track of your thoughts? Like one of the things about thinking and having a, a strong mental approach is, is these habits you form and the way you think about the challenge at hand, but actually your training log, you're obviously using it as a tool to help you like very intentionally using your training log as a tool to help you get better. You know, I remember attending a camp in San Diego when I was in high school, Manny Batista, who gave out a, a sheet of just basically, he says, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, heart rate, resting heart rate or running heart rate and number of, amount of time, sleep hours, and then also comment on the side. And I remember filling that out. You know, now we have smart watches, which I'm not against smart watches. They are very helpful. But at the same time, when you save it, you save it. If you don't, I manually would go, say I've done 26 mile long run or 27, 28 mile long run. I would manually write what the splits were for every mile and you can see the progress. And then at the end, you, you tally up all your mileage. And then it's one thing to say, oh, I'm doing about roughly 75 miles a week instead of looking at the smartwatch. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you write it down in details, you know, where was it? What were the conditions? How did you feel about it? And, you know, let's say it was sunny, great, felt great. Oh, I struggled the last five miles. Those are very valuable lessons when you handwrite it 
and it's registered into the mind. I mean, you guys know when you go to school, you listen, you take notes, and then you review, you're going to do masterful. And that's the same thing with the, by doing that for so many years for me, it was, it's great to see, oh, I'm only 95 miles a week. I was 65, three, four weeks ago. I'm improving now. I got to stay at that or I need to back off or I need to improve it to 100 next week or in two weeks. So those training are very important to be able to kind of help physically and mentally and also visually for the race coming. I can't push it too much because I got a race coming up in two weeks and it's about start backing off. Yep. I think it's so important. It keeps you so connected to what you're doing, that connection to the work. And it helps you to maintain your intentionality about what you're doing and to be thinking through what it means for the work that you're doing. And actually, I love that you came to that at the end, because I think it's a tactical tip that all of us can use as well, not just about how to think about it, but how to implement it into a daily routine like that, that can help us to improve. Uh, Meb, we're running near the end here. And, and one of the things we wanted to, to finish with is a little bit of a discussion about your relationship with UCAN, because many people might not know that you're one of, if I believe, the first major athlete to sort of sign on with UCAN back when they were just getting started. And this is right around the time of, I think, 2009, right when you're just having your success after your injury and stuff. And so I would just quickly, like, what interested you and what got you over the line in terms of willing to, to commit to say, I, I like this company. I, I want to use their product in my training. You know, like I said, I have so many role models or people who, who guide me. And Dr. Krista Austin, a PhD, who's a good friend of mine, and su- suggested that I should try this UCAN product. And, and for me, I like to try it. And it was NCAA approved. You said approved and whatever it was. And the real player here is Jonah, you know, what, how it started with Jonah Fettelman. And Dave and Wendy, his parents were waking up at every two, three hours to feed him because he had a glycogen storage issue and having a baby and that, you know, that can be dead or, or not. And that's what the UCAN started for, the superstars to keep, to keep him going alive. And wow. for me, and I remember having a lunch with them the, before I won New York City Marathon and we discussed and have tried the product and said, hey, let's make something happen. And then Obviously, I fell in love with it. You know, it was it, I was the first athlete they signed, but you know, it wasn't even labeled on it and on all those things. And I was was <laughs> thrilled. And I remember just how what the name you can, you know, you can't believe you can do anything you want. You, you are the generation you can, you know. And the name itself kind of won me, to be honest. And then to have the product, my favorite was the chocolate flavor for afterward, before after my hard workouts or tempo intervals or long runs. It's the first thing went to my system. And even when I was so busy with me after winning New York City Marathon and traveling, I would have it for a snack and between. And people thought I was running back to my 100, 130 miles runs. So I said, ah, I've been out for two weeks, I've been, but I've been using this product to keep me lean. And it was wonderful. And I felt honored and to be part of uh, Team You Can. And Shoba has been, the CEO has been phenomenal to work with and everybody there. We started you know, having seminars before marathons at the Boston Marathon the following year, maybe we had 15 or 20 people. But then over the years, you know, we're having 400, 500 people want to know about that stuff. And I love going road races and people saying, hey, I'm on that UCAM product, you know, thanks to you, appreciate it and all those things. So it's wanting to promote it, but to hear from other people how it has helped them achieve so great things. And now so many athletes are using it. It was a I say it and then, you know, before it was my secret weapon. So I'm glad to be able to share with others now that I'm retired. (laughs) Well, I noticed too, that you're still 
eating your UK and granola, you're doing all this stuff, even though you're not using it to specifically train at, at an elite level. Absolutely. Yeah. They have, you know, the bars and they have uh, snacks that you can use. And, and it's, it's pretty awesome. I think is it, the energy is incredible. I think this is kind of like a tight niche interview that we're doing unique because I can tell you from Bishop to Mammoth Lakes, where we used to do high low training or yeah. when I go there, you know, you're in a rush to get back or you might have a banana, but when you have, you can, you can go to the ice bath and go on the creek ice and then go to the gym and stretch. And you still have that consistent two hours sustained energy yeah. that I've, you know, we're not in a rush or I can come back from uh, Bishop to Mammoth and I could go to physical therapy and get worked on. I'm not in the kitchen going to whatever I got to get into my system. You have that energy. So it's been very instrumental for my career. I love it. Yeah. Med, as we wrap up here, Meb, is there anything you wanted to tell us about? What are you working on now? Uh, I know you've got the Meb Foundation, but do you want to talk a little, anything about that or any other projects that you'd like people to know about or to be able to, to follow and, and support? No, I think the 26 marathons has been wonderful. Well received the New York Times bestseller and the Med for Mortals after I won the Boston and then run to overcome. But yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, my foundation, my wife and I and Howie and others are very passionate about working to help the Med Foundation maintain excellent balance through health, education and fitness for young kids. I think the other stuff that I'm doing is just quality time. I missed a lot on my life chasing those goals and dreams, but I'm a father of three and I try to spend as much time as I can when I can and go to their soccer games. And in fact, right now we're just coming from her the middle school soccer games and then they have weekend tournaments and things like that for the clubs. They still like much involved with the sport of running, whether it's through motivational speaking or appearances. I'm grateful for that because who would ever thought Starting from seventh grade, like I said, and if you ask me if I would do this when I was at UCLA, I would say you're crazy, you know. <laughs> I don't pass on that, but to be an ambassador for so many brands has been a, a great joy, and I always enlightened to be able to be interacting with my fellow runners. Mm-hmm. So, Meb, last question here: UK and fuels the the best athletes to be their best, and I, I want to know what's your best piece of advice you want to give to our audience to help fuel their mindset to to help them excel in what they're doing in their lives. You know, I think with UCAN, so many people have issues with their stomach. I know there is a 5K, 10K, half marathon, full marathon, ultra. And UCAN is there to help you. Sometimes if you're fortunate enough to carry your own bottles, you got the, the powder to be able to all the bars to help you try and practice. And you're going to be surprised. And same thing, you know, training is important at the same time. But when it comes to races, you want to get your best. You invest so much in training. The best thing you could do is get the right nutrition to help you accomplish whatever your goal is. And I think you can has done that for me. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that's about as good as you can say it, I think. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. And we're always just loving everything you're doing from the side. So we are just so excited to be able to have this conversation with you and be able yeah. to dive into this with you. It's been a long time. I've been wanting to do it and it was great for me. Thank you. Thanks, Brian and John. And Brian, congratulations on your book again. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> great, great, you know, I, I mean, I read so, some of it and it's great, great work. And for me to be able to, you know, when I wear that USA jersey and whatnot as my teammates, my friends, my mentors, my family, and people who always invested in me is important. And yes, it might be 26.2 miles on your own per se, but get into that silent line or through your career, everybody somehow has influenced you. So for me to be able to, for the many years, I've been inspired by my teammates and friends and people who 
classmates at that matter. Sometimes uh, you know you can't see what you can do, but they can, and they tell you those things. And it's for me, it's very important. Sometimes, yeah, you know, even when I was in high school, my classmate would say, "Hey, you're gonna go to the Olympics." I mean, I barely know what the Olympics are, you know. But <laughs> you know, we're gonna sit with yeah. a medal, but all they came true. But it says, "Don't forget those." And hopefully, you know, they say, "Don't forget the small people." But hopefully, that never changed who I am. You know. To be the passion of I love people, I love interacting with people, and and there's just the demands are much more greater. But other than that, I hope that I never changes who I, my foundation, who who I stand for. I think that's pretty clear to all of us, Meb. We appreciate you, man, and thank you again for joining us today. And and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. We 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 love you, man. <laughs> all right, buddy. Good to see you guys. I know Brian from Tokyo is, is, is I don't know what time is over there, but <laughs> we appreciate you. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Fueling the Pursuit, presented by UCAN. For both athletes and active people, controlling blood sugar is the key to optimizing focus, performance, and recovery. Thankfully, UCAN has developed a patented ingredient to deliver long-lasting energy while stabilizing blood sugar levels. So to properly fuel your pursuit, both with the right nutrition and with the right food for thought. Make sure to visit youcan.co forward slash podcast to subscribe to our podcast show, to see our current lineup of upcoming guests, and of course, to learn more about UCAN's amazing products.